Hello. Welcome to Open Your Hands, conversations on craft and vision and poetry. I'm your host, Zach Saya, here with uh, poet and visual artist Aisha Kamara. Aisha, welcome. Hello. <laughs> we are here in Aisha's childhood library, Walker Library in Uptown neighborhood of Minneapolis. Um, and we're super pumped to be with you um, talking poetry. Um, so the, um, the vision of this show is to be uh, call and response. So I'm reading uh, work of poets I really admire um, and then getting the chance and the privilege to, to converse with them. Um, so um, the poem that I, I selected uh, was poem to be read after Salat Prayer. Um, and I, re- I read that poem. I sent an audio file of, of my reading uh, to Aisha and it's been a couple of weeks since I <laughs> sent that audio files. I don't remember every exact thing that, that I noted. Um, but one of the things, um, as I was rereading the poem today, uh, that came up was, was just thinking about um, how you, Aisha, position yourself um, in relationship to your religious tradition. Um, so maybe that would be kind of a good opening question or theme for our conversation, um, kind of how this poem fits into the way that you see yourself as a black Muslim woman. Yeah, so one, thank you so much for having me here. Um, so excited to engage with this work. Um, and craft is like something that I feel like is always changing for me. Uh, my idea of craft or how I enter into creating a piece of work. So it's really exciting to kind of like, here's my update about how I do the things that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, in talking about this poem, I think what was really um, engaging for me or uh, shocking or kind of like a new revelation is whenever somebody reads my work, they always read it at a different pace that I do. They have uh, different pauses um, and kind of a different breath to the work. So then I see my work in a whole new light again. Mm -hmm. Um, And in your reading and then analysis of it, I think your positionality informed me about my position. Uh, So I think I wrote this poem um, as a Muslim person and how I practice religion in America, Mm -hmm. which is kind of um, expressed or painted as a traditionally uh, Christian nation, mm-hmm. um, kind of since its inception, um, where you saw me kind of speaking about my experience from within my Muslim community and how my Islamic expression is different from possibly other Muslim folks. Um, my understanding is that uh, my religious practice will always be seen as like a cultural or religious other mm-hmm. um, when yeah. engaging in the topic of religion yeah. regardless. So. Uh, words and synonyms that we have for religion is like holy, pious, and inherently Islam is always going to be seen as kind of a dirty thing or um, kind of an outside behavior of rebellious or devious in in its inherent nature, mm-hmm. um, which is hard, yeah. right? Oh, um, because we're supposed to find like peace and joy and um like a kind of calm in our religious practice but how do you do so in something that is being deemed as like bad to begin with no matter how 
you present it as or how you practice as. So I think that's the challenge that I was facing when writing this poem. And then how to do it in a way that if the uncomfortability that I feel when practicing my religion, is there going to be an uncomfortability that I can express to my audience, mm-hmm. uh, which has to do with its orientation and how it looks on the page. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Um, and speaking of the orientation, so definitely want to share this, like the link and the poem itself uh, with our listeners. Um, it says right at the title of the poem, Form After Marwa Halal. Um, and then this reads um, from right to left. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's intentional um, and intentionally um, modeled after the Quran, right? And Arabic. So um, instead of reading in the way that you would read English, which is from the left margin of a page to the right, it's in the reverse, which is how you would read the Quran, which is how you would read Arabic. Um, So it's disorienting as soon as you start reading the poem, Mm -hmm. which is a feeling that I have. So with poetry, sometimes you have to think about texture in that way. You're trying to um, maybe center yourself through a feeling if you know that the experience that you have might not be universal. Mm. So Islam is not a universal practice. Um, And most people don't know about you know, every ordinary details that feel ordinary to me because it's how I grew up. So daily prayers, um, duas, uh, salat, prayer, um, those are things that just feel like everyday normal actions for me. And I understand that my readers will not all understand that, but they do understand the feeling of confusion and uncomfortability. So what, how can I tap into universal emotions, things that Mm. I can kind of make the assumption that every human being has felt before? Definitely. That makes good sense. Um, So you are, so I I don't know if I've shared this with all the listeners. I think I mentioned in the first um, episode, but I had the privilege of teaching you uh, as a ninth grader. You visited my classes, and my students love you. Um, and, one, and one of the things that they're consistently moved by is just the way you embody your poems and perform them. And so we have a unique opportunity to hear you live. I think maybe it'd be cool right near the opening of this conversation, uh, if you don't mind, maybe reading a piece. A new Okay, yeah. Um, I would like to share some new work. I think it feels very full circle. Um, this is work that is new, so like, we like, no one has read it, so that's exciting. Yeah. No one has seen it, okay. um, and it's work that I created during my first semester um, in my uh, graduate program. I'm currently um, a student at Randolph College. Uh, receiving, attempting to receive my MFA in creative writing. So this is a work I created under Philip Williams, who is a stunning poet, author of the book Mutiny. So yeah. Stairway down to heaven, a palindrome pantoum. For a year, I kept myself from writing about my Baba. I wanted to practice discipline, forgiveness, silence, I tried to hold him in prayer, his name in every rekka. It did not work. He always found me, with him, violence. I wanted to practice discipline, forgiveness, silence. I taught myself against his weighted steel, 
his malleable fury. It did not work. He always found me. With him, violence. As a result, I prayed the day we two stood under a just jury. I taught myself against his weighted steel, his malleable fury. I turned a poem into a promise, into malice hanging off the seams. As a result, I prayed the day we two stood under a just jury for when my father and I meet in my dreams. I turned a poem into a promise, into malice hanging off the seams. For a year, I kept myself from writing about my Baba. Nothing works. In, a, in this dream, I hover over him. With his blood, my knuckles gleam. Behind my Baba and me, God watches and she smirks. Behind my Baba and me, God watches and she smirks. In this dream, I hover over him. With his blood, my knuckles gleam. For a year, I kept myself from writing about my Baba. Nothing works. I turned a poem into a promise, into malice hanging off the seams for when my father and I meet in my dreams. As a result, I prayed the day we two stood under a just jury. I turned a poem into a promise, into malice hanging off the seams. I taught myself against his weighted steel, his malleable fury. As a result, I prayed the day we two stood under a just jury. It did not work. He always found me. With him, violence. I taught myself against his weighted steel, his malleable fury. I wanted to practice discipline, forgiveness, silence. It did not work. He always found me. With him, violence. I tried to hold him in prayer, his name in every raka. I wanted to practice discipline, forgiveness, silence. For a year, I kept myself from writing about my Baba. Thank you, Aisha. So the, the show is called uh, Conversations on Craft and Vision, and I know you are so intentional about craft. And um, so some of our listeners probably know the, the form of the pantoum, but some of us might be like, what, what is that again? Um, could you maybe talk about kind of decisions about that form and maybe how it interacted with the vision of the poem? Yeah, so... Um a pantoum is lines that are repeating, but it's the whole sentence versus the end of the end of the word repeating. Mm. Um, so for a year, I kept myself from writing about my Baba is the first line. And then it will repeat again all the way at the end. A pantoum can go as long as you want, but 16 is such a perfect number to me. Mm. Uh, and it kind of has like a rhythmic pattern to it. Fours, eights, 12, 16. So I try to keep that kind of music within the poem. Um, but a palindrome is a poem that can be read from top to bottom and then bottom to top again. So uh, here in the pantoum, there's a repetition that happens once, but the repetition proceeds again when it's read from top to bottom. Mm. Um, so it's two forms that come together. And when you kind of create a form of your own, it's a knots form. Mm -hmm. um, it's usually a form that you think you can only really use once. Yeah. Um, it's kind of for the fun of it, but it's also for... 
um, gauging if you can get another kind of translation or reading uh, with that like fusion of forms. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think my intention is to kind of say that there was an attempt to enter the poem one way. So the speaker is trying to be, trying to create a certain relationship with their father through the religion, a kind of binding. And towards the end, the speaker realizes that it's a failed attempt. But then the second reading is knowing that it's a failed attempt and knowing that it can kind of get hard and sort of gory, but leading in that violence with a kind of calm or neutrality, knowing that the relationship will never be what they want it to be. Um, so there's a, supposed to be a perception of the person in the first reading, the speaker, and then a kind of changed uh, reflection of them in the second reading. So. Mm. Thank you. And you were saying you composed this poem in some way in conversation with Philip Williams. Do you want to talk at all about kind of how he uh, supported you in, in crafting this? Yeah, so as my mentor, he was like, write a pantoum. That's also a palindrome. Uh-huh. Uh, so he gave me this form to do. Yeah. Um, and I was like, man, oh man. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, the way Philip thinks is magnificent, right? I can like gush on and on about how great he is. Mm-hmm. But I think he kind of uh, pushes uh, writers pushes me to have um, restraints, mm-hmm. so uh, rules that I have to follow. So when I choose not to follow those rules, I can still be as intentional as I would be had I had those rules and restraints, mm-hmm. which I think really tightens the writing and really uh, forces me to have a little more control with my words and to not just use words because they sound good mm-hmm. or to not use words because they have four syllables instead of three, but to use words because I think the meaning will be altered had I chose another word or had I went another route. Um, and to also kind of minimize my fear maybe mm-hmm. of forms because sometimes they can be a little daunting, um, especially if like maybe you want to follow a traditional sonnet. So that means I am big pentameter. That means so a syllable count. Um, that means 14 lines. Do you want to do an Italian sonnet or do you want to do a Shakespearean sonnet? Um, that can kind of be overwhelming if you're like, I want to write a sonnet, but I don't know. Sometimes if you write that hard traditional sonnet, then you can kind of break the rules later. So your sonnet will still be a sonnet as long as it's 14 lines. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that can feel more inviting. Or maybe you do a poem that doesn't have a line count, but has iambic pentameter. So now you're just taking bits and pieces of what you learned from a traditional sonnet to then address your work or newer poems. I love this. Um, and, you know, I told you before we we uh, started this conversation, I'm definitely going to be sharing it with my students. Um, and I'm always looking as a teacher just for ways to yeah, to make poetry come alive. And, you know, like you said, the forms can be daunting, but there's there's lots of ways in yeah. um, and, and to mess around with the yeah. forms, right? Um, and, you know, speaking of my students, so they, they often get introduced to you as a spoken word poet when you were their age and you were, you were uh, creating amazing spoken word pieces. And I'm curious, just kind of like, um, thinking about your own trajectory as a as a poet, 
how that that part of your life and your profession and vocation as a poet, how that kind of manifests itself now um, as a writer. I'm just curious about kind of that, the integration of that part of, of you as a poet. Uh, yeah, so I grew up as like a slam poet. Um, I worked closely uh, both under and with Gerard Speaks, which is a nonprofit profit organization here in Minneapolis um, that focuses on like leadership um, and literacy through hip hop and spoken word culture. Um, I owe so much to that family of mine and I am always very honored when I get to come back into that community no longer as like a young person. Mm. Well, I guess I'm still young, but um, but as like somebody who can assist in uh, even younger folks development and stuff like that because I think without that I would not be the person that I am today. Um, so a lot of the uh, work that I did when I was like kind of 13 through 18 was uh, their Be Heard Slam, which is a competition of spoken word. Uh, you develop a team that represents the Twin Cities and then that team will go to Brave New Voices, which is a nationwide competition. So. The poetry was both the writing that I created myself, but then how I kind of put it on its feet and how I performed it in my body, which I think made writing as I grew a very visceral, physical experience versus me just writing a bunch of like eloquent words and following like English rules. I got to be like, okay, what does it mean if I, like when I say the word arm, do I mean it in the physical sense or do I mean it as like an extension of my body? Mm. Um, so once again, like all of these hard rules, so to speak, like things that you have to do in English, you don't have to do anything. Mm. And I think that freedom of verbal expression, but then physical expression and having those conversations at the same time was like hard for me because I was not as communicative as I am now. I didn't know how to like eloquent my thoughts, but I knew what I was feeling. So then poetry was like, okay, don't worry about the cleanness of your language. Worry about if you're able to communicate your feelings. And that's all language is, the ability to communicate. If I say a bunch of words to you right now and you don't understand me, I could be speaking like the most quote unquote best formal English, but if you aren't getting me, what is the point of the conversation that we're having? Um, but if I, you know, bare bones, I'm like, I feel this way. And you're like, I get that. Then we're having the conversation that we're supposed to be having. Mm -hmm. And I think that helped me because sometimes I could translate a word with my body better than I could explain the word. Yeah. Um, and I think about that tool when I'm writing all of these poems now, now that I don't slam as much, it's not a competition space where people are putting up numbers for my mm -hmm. poem, but I kind of have um, those numbers in my head. Yeah. Not even to say that this is a good poem, this is a bad poem, but those numbers as in like, okay, I'm translating my message and it's coming across. Mm -hmm. uh, that feels very rewarding. So. A measurement for myself is, you know, can your students who are 14, 15 understand me uh -huh. as well as my peers who are my age and as well as this older audience, too, who like um, has a, who maybe they don't have the same contemporary artists that I like adore, um, but they have older artists. And then also like James Baldwin is like one of my favorite writers. So I always think like, would James Baldwin like my poem? <laughs> and, th and that kind of matters to me, right? But then also Missy Elliott is one of my favorite yeah. artists and she yeah. influences me 
<clears throat> daily. And I'm also like, would she like my poems? And how my poetry is like kind of intermedia, like it come i'm inspired by different mediums so i yeah. hope my poetry can live in those different mediums as well too yeah thank you i love that answer so much um, i told you you know one of our first guests was father joseph brown who's yeah. a poet a jesuit priest and he you know he's got a phd in africana studies and he said he never after all his education he never wanted to give a sermon that his mother and father couldn't understand every single word and relate to. And it seemed, that seems some of what you're saying, right? You know, like authenticity mm-hmm. really matters. And I just want to say for the listeners and of course to you, you know, we have this, it's part of my poetry and we have students that write mm-hmm. uh, to poets and every year that we've done it so far, the two years so, so far, uh, you are always like drafted number one. The students are like, yes. And I think the reason is because you're so authentic, right? It resonates uh, with, with, with the students that I teach. So thank you. Um, so you're talking a little bit about expression with your body. Um, and you're not only a, a, a verbal, spoken, written artist. You're also a visual artist. Um, maybe could you talk about maybe the, the ways uh, that art form and your practice of that interact with your work as a poet or in ways that it might be separate as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I definitely think all of my art forms or all of my forms of expression are very interconnected. Um, my degree is in human development and family studies. And one of the most like critical things that I took from that was uh, the human ecological model. It's a model f- by Dr. Bronfenbrenner, I hope I said that right. And if you look at it, it's a spear. And in the center of the spear, sometimes you'll see a child because we work with children, but sometimes you'll see the individual. And each spear has a different level. And outside of the individual, there is the microsphere, family, um, the hospitals the ch- the individual goes to, the school, the immediate environment. Um, then you have the mesosphere, then you have the exosphere, the macrosphere, and lastly, the chrono uh, system, which is time. Um, So every human being essentially kind of has this spear that they're carrying around. And I kind of think of my art as that spear too. So if I'm the individual in the center, my art is for me. And then there's a very immediate group that my art is for, which is my sisters and my mother, um, which are the women in my life, the Muslim folks in my life, the black folks in my life. And then that spear gets larger. And also as that spirit gets larger, my control loosens, mm-hmm. as in like my poetry or my art will fall in the hands of everyone. But then their responses and understanding of my art will come back to me. Mm-hmm. And I then shape more art from that understanding yeah, yeah. and that conversation. So I think about my visual art in the same way, and it's so closely related to my poetry. So um, a book that I just finished was The Big Spoke, Big Smoke by Adrian Matika, I hope I'm saying that right. And it was a book um, that is in the persona of Jack Johnson, who was uh, a black uh, boxer mm-hmm. back in like the 1940s-ish. And it's stunning because you have to read the work and remind yourself that Jack Johnson himself is not writing this, mm-hmm. but the author does such a phenomenal job of embodying that person. And so once I was done reading that poem, I made a color map. And a color map for me is basically how I'm understanding the book through color. Um, So this is a poetry book, but it looks blue 
and burgundy and brown and black yeah. to me. And it makes me understand that these are the emotions that are coming up for me in kind of this um, like material way, like it has a form yeah. essentially. So whenever I come back to that book, I can re-merge myself in those feelings again to remember what those words meant to me when I was reading them. Yeah. So art is like, so a part of my poetry understanding that it's kind of second nature. I don't yeah. even notice it. Um, but it's necessary in me, like translating my thoughts and feelings. Um, cause sometimes words aren't even enough and we have so many of them. <laughs> Thank you. I love that. Um, I was saying, you know, before we started this conversation, I also love your, your artist statement or artist bio. Um, I read it part of it, um, or no, another version of it, um, for the first episode. Um, I wanted to read a little of it now and also just kind of zoom in on a, a, a sentence that, that I really love. Um, and I think maybe could, could spark some conversation here. Um, so Aisha has been writing and performing poetry since the age of 13 and moves with the intention to always sharpen her blade. Most subjects she writes about circle thoughts and experiences of her identity as a black Muslim woman and the ways in which she navigates in America and in turn understanding how America responds back to her. So I love that, just thinking about that, that um, dialogue. And then the last sentence of your biography says, after the wonderful publications you've been in, mm -hmm. shout out by the way, um, Aisha's purpose is to give a narrative that creates conversations supple with empathy, driven by tenderness. Um, so you alluded to a little bit, just kind of like, um, as the circle widens, you know, like you get information from readers or listeners. And I'm just curious, like, could you kind of take us through maybe some of those poems that you've written and kind of how they've landed with people and how that's informed mm -hmm. how you go forward as an artist? Yeah, so I think because both um, my background as a slam poet where like, it's it's kind of aggressive because like we're in competition with each other um and like you have to make people remember your work by how you performed it um by the experience they gain by watching you go through your poem that's essentially what that performance is um and i think also i am a black woman and that engages people with my work in different ways that there are assumptions that people make of me because of who I am, which is fine. Um, but that alters their reading of me, right? So if they see that aggression in a poem that I consider tender, um, or if they see something that they're like, oh, the fire represents a burning. And I'm like, the fire represents warmth and home. You know, those interpretations change based off of my experience as a black woman in America. So I think that's always really interesting to me. Um, and sometimes I have to take it with a grain of salt, but sometimes that opens a conversation as to why do you think that is the way that it is? Mm -hmm. And if I had um, a white counterpart or a male counterpart read the same poem, would you have the same reaction? Mm -hmm. Digging into what people might consider uncomfortable, but for me is my everyday. Um, the part of sharpening my blade, but also the tenderness is the versatility that I want my poem to have. That if you if it has to be, 
your soldier, then let it be your soldier. But it is if the poem is your caregiver, let it be that too. Um, and that my poem is shape-shifting, right? Depending on what space or depending on the audience, as I said, I lose, I lose control as the poem reaches audience that I don't necessarily intend or create my poetry for, but people still have a grasp on. Um, so sometimes I get reactions that I may have never considered, but um, those reactions are still valid. Those reactions still exist. And it's up to me to like take them and bring them into conversation with everything else I'm doing or to discard them um, because I don't think they serve me or serve my purpose. Um, and I think that's just like an everyday challenge um, with more than just poetry, but just like everyday life, how I choose to wake mm -hmm. up and things like that too. So kind of how I say like poetry is an extension of myself. It's just another form of communication. Love that. Um, so we were talking um, earlier before this uh, recording started just about uh, you and the MFA program at Randolph. Um, and you know, one of this, the, the, the focuses of this podcast is thinking about, uh, craft and vision, how they interact. Um, and it sounded like you, you've been getting a lot of volume going on in poems. Um, and I'm curious, like, as you're creating just a, a body of work, do you ever think about kind of like how poems are talking to each other? Are you thinking like, oh, this, this collection, it might be, you know, I'm just curious about how you think about sort of a, a body of work uh, and your own body of work, especially as you're, you're doing some intensive study in this MFA. Yeah, I'm always, I'm always thinking about like the order of my poems or like, how, like if I wrote a poem about like the color blue and then I wrote a sonnet about the color blue, like what, what different thing am I saying? And Denise Smith said this the best, you have to be curious mm -hmm. in poetry because Somebody has already said what you said a thousand years ago, mm. but why do you find it important to say it now, right? So we've been circling the same conversations about rage and grief and loss, but we're still always writing towards those things. Why? Because we're curious about what the next person has to say about it. Or, or there's, we have to have the belief that no, like we're not done investigating that. I know there's dozens of love poems and dozens of... Um, the poems about the sky but somebody hasn't said something about mm. the sky that like curiosity and desire to like be be the person or read about somebody who's who has more to say i think is is what i'm hoping for in conversation with my poems that three poems will then reveal the fourth poem <laughs> right like i'm just yeah. like giving birth to more and more poetry at a yeah. time yeah and that that's what i'm hoping to seek too um my desire always is if somebody was to read one poem of me and know it's me and then they wrote read another poem they could like scroll down and be like i knew this was aisha mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. like and that that excites me yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is lovely yeah and so yeah in some sense like good poetry is almost inexhaustible and in, and oh, it, yeah it just yeah. it just kind of begets yeah, more yeah. um <laughs> i love this yeah that's so cool um so yeah maybe maybe that's a, a, maybe a good place to take the rest of the conversation maybe is there something as we've been talking like that has come up as um yeah, an avenue that maybe you wanted to explore a little more because I've, I've kind of I've got my questions that I've asked. Um, but yeah, is there something maybe that's 
that we'd want to explore further from kind of the, the topics we've just just spoken about that's really good questions i'm like <laughs> i'm like any more questions i think i think to to then um add on to that like if there's something that i think is worth exploring i think love um i'm rereading for like the third time bell hooks all about love mm. and i took a course um at the university of wisconsin madison um about a weaponizing tenderness mm. and i had to write a essay about um if i thought i've seen unconditional love where have i seen it mm. and i was pulling from like different media and stuff like that from like shows like sensei to bell hooks and audrey lord and this mm. idea that i also think love is inexhaustible inexhaustible and this abundant thing like there's an endless amount of it and that we're all seeking it in very different ways whether you're thinking about familial ties or romance or self-love and self-care um and how maybe uh, societal notions that a love is supposed to look a certain way it denies people that access um or makes it feel as though you have to come a certain way have to be modeled after a certain idea to then receive love or produce it. Um, so I think that's an idea that I'm consistently grappling with. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes those conversations happen by myself, and then sometimes those conversations happen in community um, because I don't think we're lonely people. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I have so many ideas about mm -hmm. love, I think. And that's like the idea that I think I write three poems about and then I'm like, mm -hmm. I can write another poem about this too. So, well, yeah, I think I think love is a good place to end. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just I just want to say again, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this, Aisha, and thank you for your work and witness as a poet. This has been a true pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm I'm extremely honored. Always happy to be in community with you. All right, thank you. To read and listen to more of Aisha Kamara's poetry, go to her website at AishaKamara.com. That's I-S-H-A-C-A-M-A-R-A.com. And thanks to my cousin, musician Dustin Coppertoons Jensen, who has generously allowed me to use his song, Speed of Understanding, as introduction, interlude, and closing music to this episode. To find out more about Copper Tunes, go to soundcloud.com slash coppertunes.